Welcome to Get Messy, a Melbourne Emergency Student Society podcast covering all the crit care content meant for one student and then some. All the information in this podcast is put together by medical students for medical students and should not be taken as medical advice. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Get Messy. I'm Liam. And I'm Fee. So there's been a little bit of a delay between our recent episodes, and we're sorry about that. The recent lockdowns uh, in Melbourne overlapping with mid-year break and placement requirements have meant that Fee and I have been very busy and it's been very hard to meet up. But anyway, we're back and we're hoping to get back to a regular release schedule for you all. So we're going to release a series of the next three episodes. It's actually a series on ventilation and airways. And this is a very highly requested topic that people who put feedback in have really wanted to hear. And I can understand why. Yeah. It's kind of scary talking about airways and what all these buttons do in ICE and next to the ventilators. So this is going to be a great topic. I feel like it's one of those black box areas of medicine where, you know, you see the ventilator machine and you see all the weird numbers and values mm. and no one really has any idea what's going on. So hopefully we'll be able to provide some kind of clarity around that. As we mentioned, this was brought up multiple times in the recent survey. Thanks to everyone who took the time to give us some very well-received feedback. We have listened to it, and we're trying to put all those things into practice. It's a good time to acknowledge the winner of our Scrubs giveaway. Congratulations to Monica. Yay, Monica! <laughs> so, today's episode is going to focus predominantly on securing airways and delivering oxygen or ventilation. We're going to follow this up next episode with non-invasive ventilation strategies. Then after that, invasive ventilation. Over the next few episodes, we're going to cover all the buzzwords, including PEEP, BiPAP, CPAP, and everything else. And we recommend that you listen to them in order, because the things that we cover in later episodes, the foundations will be covered in the mm. early episodes. Yeah, and if you like a written guide to the content in these two episodes, if you're a person who just needs a good summary and doesn't really learn the best through auditory learning, which is me, you can access them under our COVID-19 resources on our website, which is www.messunimelb.org. And that guide also contains a list of resources from basic to more advanced ventilator settings. If, like me, you're very um, interested in the buttons <laughs> in ICU. <laughs> As always, this is intended to be an overview for students as to what the different methods of ventilation are. This is not a crash course in becoming an anaesthetist. And when you are in a critical situation, like in a code blue, or even a met call and you're worried about airways, follow your doctor's ABCD EFG. There's a podcast on that as well. And call for help. Airways can be dangerous. Patients can deteriorate really quickly, like in minutes. So just know your limitations and don't be afraid to call for help. You don't have to deal with this on your own. Yeah, very well put. Sophie, let's get started. You're working in the ED when a patient gets wheeled into resus, acutely short of breath. While the team assembles, you start getting ready to give this patient some oxygen. Starting from the least invasive to the most, what are your options? So the least invasive would be nasal prongs, and you can max it out at four litres per minute. If you try and push the numbers any higher beyond four litres, the tube apparently actually just blows off the just wall. Just pops off the wall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you would know that you've gone too far. Um, so nasal prongs, four litres per minute. That's the least invasive. Then one step up from that would be the Hudson mask, which is the mask that you see patients on or in movies. That maxes at around 15 litres per minute. And this is what you usually just chuck on if you notice a patient having deteriorating stats and you're just on a general ward. In places like ED, ICU and respiratory high dependency units, you can go for high flow nasal prongs, which you can actually put up to 40 litres per minute. You can tell the difference between these high flow ones and normal nasal prongs 
with high flow, the tube is a lot thicker and there's a bit of, I think, blue around um, yeah. the nasal prong areas and it's a lot thicker as well. Yeah, and you also have to run the circuit through a humidifier as well. So that's also one of the giveaways that's the difference. I'll also quickly mention, because some of these things have changed a little bit with COVID as well. So there are some places you can do some of these interventions and some places you can't. Oh, really? Because what do you mean? Like... Uh, for example, you know, nebulizers is a key one oh, to have a nebulizer right. yeah. that has to be in a hot zone or a, that kind of thing now. And similarly, sometimes high flow nasal prongs, there are some limitations because it's technically an aerosol generating procedure. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So when we talk about nasal prongs and masks and flow, do you want to explain what flow is mm. and why it's important? Yeah, cool. So... When we talk about oxygen delivery to a patient, you're multiplying your flow by your fraction of inspired oxygen, right? So when we're putting someone on the tube, the amount of oxygen that gets into their lungs depends on the minute ventilation of the patient, which is how much they're breathing in per breath times the respiratory rate, so tidal volume times respiratory rate. If our patient is short of breath, has a respiratory rate of 20 breaths a minute, uh, let's make their numbers easy, their tidal volume is 500 mils. Mm -hmm. That means their minute ventilation is going to be 10 litres a minute, right? 20 times 500. Yeah, yep. okay. exactly. So if we give nasal prongs at 100% FiO2, the maximum amount of pure oxygen they're getting in is only 4 litres. That means the other 6 litres that they're breathing in per minute is just plain old room air. So if they're a mouth breather as well, because with nasal prongs, you know, you're just going straight up nostrils, they're going to be getting even less. And if you've got a patient with respiratory distress, they're probably going to be mouth breathing. Mm. Okay. So these are the things that we're trying to factor in when we think about what form of oxygen support to put someone on. We're kind of thinking how are they breathing through mouth or nose and yeah. also what kind of oxygen supply are we going to be able to give them. So when we give someone high flow nasal prongs, the difference there is that we can massively increase the actual volume of oxygen that we're giving so that even though they're all at 100%, you can kind of make it so that the patient's breathing in actually 100% oxygen as well. So you're just literally trying to get more oxygen molecules into their lungs. Uh, that's yeah. it, exactly. Okay, yeah. yeah. That was a concept that always really confused me because I always thought like, oh, you just put a mask on all the air that's going through must be oxygen, but they're not actually getting the oxygen molecules down. Yeah. yeah. And it's actually a fairly common uh, ward call, particularly in places like Gen Med, where nursing staff may be concerned that oxygen stats are dropping despite the fact that they're on nasal prongs. Mm. And when you go into the room, you see that it's a patient with you know COPD and they're just breathing through their mouth. And the reason that their oxygen stats are so low is because they're actually not getting any of the oxygen that's going straight out their nostrils. Yep, or they're delirious and they've pulled off the nasal prongs and it's sitting on their head. That's yeah, the other one exactly. as well. <laughs> So with high-flow nasal prongs, so these ones found in ED, ICU, and respiratory HDU, they can provide something called PEEP. So what is PEEP? So we're going to focus on this a lot next episode, but PEEP stands for positive and expiratory pressure. So basically it means that you're breathing out against a force. So your end expiratory kind of stage for breathing out, pressure pushing you back in because it's positive. Mm. So uh, the way I kind of think about this is if you're we're driving down the freeway at 100 k's an hour All right. and you decide to imitate your dog and stick your head out the window, <laughs> when you're breathing out, you're breathing out against that rush of air going at 100 k's an hour past your face. That's right? the positive pressure. That's the positive pressure. So you actually are having to generate force within your lungs and actively expire. And doing that is really useful for keeping your alveoli splinted open. Um, oh, okay. So that's why we use PEEP. If that doesn't make sense, tune in next episode. We're going to cover it in a lot more detail. 
The, in terms of high-flow nasal prongs and PEEP, there is a bit of discussion. Some people think it's just a bit of marketing, but, you know, the evidence is a little bit mixed. It probably doesn't hurt is the, the main message. So if you've got a patient that you think has a little bit of atelectasis, so a little bit of lung collapse mm. or lung consolidation kind of thing at the bases, it's probably going to help a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So on the topic of PEEP, let's say that our patient has been on Hudson mask for the last 20 minutes or so, but they're not improving. Their sats are slowly getting worse, and the ABG, which you masterfully interpreted (laughs) after listening to our first podcast, shows that they're developing some degree of respiratory failure. What options do we have for non-invasive ventilation? Okay, so we've exhausted the Hudson, and assuming that you put them on 15 litres per minute, you've exhausted it, it's just not happening. You could consider CPAP and BiPAP. Yeah, exactly. And again, we're going to focus on invasive, non-invasive ventilation, sorry, next episode. But broadly speaking, CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure. It's monophasic. It's mainly used to deliver PEEP because you're just delivering one pressure level across the entire breath. Whereas BiPAP is biphasic, provides two levels of support. So when the patient takes a breath in, we can give them extra pressure to help them breathe in. So increased inspiratory pressure as well as pressure as they breathe out, which is the PEEP. Yep, yep. So, Fee, why do we call these non-invasive ventilation strategies? So, it's in the name. It's because they don't require an invasive procedure to work. And what this usually looks like is having a tight-fitting mask fitted over the whole face. And when we talk about invasive, what I'm actually meaning is, like, shoving a tube down someone's throat with anaesthetic. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So... I guess a key thing, if you're seeing a patient in the ward, you're trying to figure out whether they got invasive ventilation or not. If they've got a mask on and they're awake, it's non-invasive. Yeah. Uh, because as you said, to stick a tube down someone's throat, they need to be asleep. Yeah, they need general. Yeah. So, so let's move on to invasive then, right? So now you're an intern on the ward. You get patient of a patient who seems a bit more drowsy than usual. By the time you get there, the patient is unrousable and you're worried about their breathing. You remember your approach to the deteriorating patient and you call a code blue, but whilst the team is waiting to get there, what are some of the things that you can do to help support their breathing and ventilation fee? Yeah. So as an intern, you're not expected to intubate people. You're not trained to intubate people and no one expects you to do it either. So you can do very simple things, basic things that you would learn in life support. And this means airway maneuvers. So your chin lift and your jaw thrust And if they're still able to breathe on their own and you see the chest is still rising, you can throw on a Hudson mask Mm -hmm. and put on the 15 litres per minute. If you notice that they're breathing, like the chest rising, um, gets a bit slow, irregular, or they just stop breathing and your code blue team has still not arrived and you're just by yourself in the ward with a few nurses, you can then get the rebreather to deliver the breaths. And the rebreather is a really fat orange thing with a bag at the end of it that's attached. Yeah, exactly. So a non-rebreather, similar to a bag valve mask, (laughs) always get BVM and BMV mixed up. So you can essentially, with a non-rebreather, you stick that over it and because it's got an oxygen reservoir, you're just, again, increasing the concentration of oxygen that the patient's breathing in with each breath. And it has the added benefit of if your patient then stops breathing and you have to take over their breathing, you're able to deliver breaths through that system. Yeah, so you just squeeze the orange, the orange plastic thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, and you're actually helping like breathing for them yeah. in that situation. Whereas with the Hudson mask, the patient still has to actually take breaths in and out. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So what's the next more invasive thing you can do? 
So the next small invasive thing is using oral pharyngeal or nasopharyngeal airways. Are these your like little... This is like the Goodell. The Goodells, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what this does is, is they're like little cylindrical plastic tubes, really, that, you know, usually around like five centimetres or less in length. And you pop one into someone's mouth for the oropharyngeal. For nasopharyngeal, you usually just pop one up through someone's nostril. Yep. And what this does is ensuring a patent lumen to the trachea. So making sure like your nose or your mouth isn't actually like closed off. So the air can't mechanically get into your trachea. Yeah. So essentially, particularly that's about an OPA, um, it's going to help hold the tongue forward, prevent the mm. tongue rolling back and occluding the airway that way. And nasopharyngeal, it's kind of the same. It just means that you know that you've got a tube which is running from where the oxygen's coming in down the back of the throat and again past the tongue. Yeah. Um, an obvious contraindication to the NPA, which I think is always good to consider, is if they have head trauma and a query base of skull fracture, you wouldn't go for a nasopharyngeal and that. Yeah, uh, smash it right through yeah. the base of skull. <laughs> same. Anyone with base of skull fractures, you're not putting anything up the nostrils. Yeah. But these are very easy to find in the wards. Your patient doesn't need to be completely unconscious. If they're kind of in the poo, on the av-poo scale, they can sometimes tolerate one of these. Um, mm. And they can be a good sign when your patient's improving because they'll start trying to cough the opioid out. out. <laughs> or yeah. try and pull it out. Yeah. Um, so if, just to summarise, they're little plastic cylindrical tubes that you put either into the mouth or up the nostril and then you put the Hudson mask on top of that or mm. the non-rebreather on top of that mm. and these little tubes just make sure that all the tubes that lead to your throat are open. Yeah. So the oxygen is actually getting through. That's as simple as I can explain it. Exactly. Okay. So unfortunately, a patient further deteriorates, but luckily the Code Blue team has arrived. Yay! Because the patient (laughs) has lost consciousness, they are worried about securing the airway. Fee, what do we mean by securing the airway? So you hear this term be thrown around a lot, especially with your surge or with anaesthetics as well. So the idea to secure the airway is that you have a airway that's going to be reliable, that's going to be open, and you can constantly um, deliver a consistent ventilation or yeah. oxygen. Yeah. yeah. So by that, we mean like stopping a patient from vomiting, having secretions go down the airway, mm. which would stop proper ventilation. Yeah, exactly. So... One of the key things we worry about with patients that start dropping their GCS is that if they were to vomit or if they had pooling saliva or something like that, you lose the airway reflex, which normally causes you to cough up anything that starts going down the wrong pipe. Mm. So what we're trying to do with a secure airway is we put something in which kind of blocks off and prevents any vomit or secretions which do come up from going down into the lungs and causing an aspiration, pneumonitis or pneumonia. Mm. So, Fee, what kind of things will we use to give us a secured airway? So, we can intubate with an ETT or endotracheal tube. Yep. The other option is a laryngeal mask airway or an LMA. Yeah. So, traditional teaching is that ETTs are really the main form of a secure airway. They are the gold standard in many ways. But the role of the LMA, they're relatively recent and there's some new data coming out that shows that even though they're not technically a secured airway, the newer models are doing a much better job at securing it. So what an LMA is, with an ETT, you've got a tube which is passing down through the vocal cords. You inflate a little balloon just below the level of the vocal cords and that stops anything being able to get down to the Mm. lungs. An LMA sits just on top of the vocal cord, so there's nothing going through to theoretically prevent anything going down. 
But the newer ones, which fit a lot more nicely, um, have shown Mm. that they actually do create a seal that's good enough to prevent that kind of thing. So LMAs were started off in being used in theatre with patients that were very low risk of aspiration because they'd been fasting for, you know, 12 hours. Yep. But because of their ease of use, um, they require less training, they're easy to get in with difficult airways and that kind of thing. They are being considered for their role in things uh, like emergent airway situations or if you've got a trauma patient and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I would suggest you guys just Google endotracheal tube and google laryngeal mask airway if you want to see actually look at the difference the laryngeal mask airway is literally like a little baby mask attached to the end of the tube which you just shove on top of the vocal cords is how i picture it yeah yeah even easier than googling you can check out our notes on the mess (laughs) shameless yeah (laughs) cool so it turns out that this patient has had a difficult airway and despite video assisted laryngoscopy and several attempts the patient can't be intubated what would be the next and I guess the final step to secure the airway fee? Yeah, this is like last resort. You've literally tried everything, any sort of prongs, mask. You've tried trying to intubate them. What you need to do now is front of neck access. And this is a stuff that you would see on house. One example of it is a yeah. cricothyroidotomy. Cricothyroidotomy. <laughs> I can't say this. Yeah. And you're literally just making a hole through the cricothyroid membrane. This is when you hear the stories about getting a ballpoint pen and stabbing someone through the neck. MacGyvering them on the plane. Yeah, yeah. stuff like that. (laughs) And the other option, if you do have more time, is to take them to theatre with ENT for a tracheostomy. So these are two different places anatomically. Mm -hmm. The cricothyroidotomy is through the cricothyroid membrane. It's a bit higher up. Mm Mm-hmm. There are more vessels around, so it's a bit more risky if you end up stabbing a major vessel and just bleeding out. With the tracheostomy. So the tracheostomy, because it's a little lower, you have more vessels. Oh, sorry, that's um, right, yeah. Which is why you need theatre, so that you've got good visual visualisation and it's a little bit more controlled. Okay, yep, sorry, yeah. my bad. So tracheostomy, you need to go to theatre, more vessels around, and it's a little bit lower. If you are in a last-ditch resort situation, like theoretically on a plane and someone loses their airway mm. and they're going to die, cricothyroidotomy is a bit higher up. You pierce through the membrane, cricothyroid membrane, less vessels around, so a little bit less dicey, but they're both dicey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a few anesthetic techniques, but whenever there's a, an invasive airway plan being put into place, you'll hear the person who's leading the intubation mm. will talk about their plan A, B, and C. Yes. So yep. what happens, they'll try the intubation first of all, that doesn't work, what their plan is, and then usually step C or D is going to be front of neck access. So it's prepared for in every intubation, but it's very rarely needed. Mm. I think a good thing to remember in this case, if you're ever in the situation where you know things aren't working, you progress down a step. So this may not be an internship, but even when you're a registrar or something like that, something that a registrar taught me is that if you've tried the next step, so you've tried to intubate, you've tried something, and the patient stops responding, they start desaturating again, you can always go back to the last thing that worked. So if you can't get that ETT in, but you could ventilate them really, really nicely with that bag valve mask, mm. then just go back to that, you know, and just oxygenate them again, get them back to a stable spot, and then you can have another go. Don't feel like once you've committed to the intubation, you just have to keep going until they get it in <laughs> because that kind of fixed mindset is what leads to you know anesthetic mishaps. So anesthetists have got a very comprehensive airway plan to try and make sure that they don't get stuck in that fixed mindset. Yeah. Similar to that, when I was doing peds at the children's, 
I had this big fear of like, oh, what happens if you're a pediatrician and you get cold and baby's not breathing and the code blue team's not here yet. Like, what do you actually do as such a junior person? You can't intubate a neonate. Mm. And the pediatrician was like, well, you always have a mask. Just pop the mask on, put a bit of peep on and just hold the child's head like that until mm. someone comes. Like, you don't need to intubate, but you can do smaller, less invasive things until absolutely. the team gets there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good point. And I think that's a great point for us to finish on. So that's all for today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And don't forget to listen in to our next week's podcast, which is going to be on non-invasive ventilation, the second one in this series. Yay. Also, we have Journal Club. So what we do with Journal Club is we summarise a few key critical papers in the crit care field. Mm-hmm. If you guys are interested, it's literally very interesting. And if you're not... And that, brand new. And brand new. And it's a good way to keep up to date. Yeah. yeah. So to get access to that, if you're a UniMelb student, just make sure you've signed up with MESS. Signing up with MESS means that you get access to more of our resources as well as to the Journal Club. Otherwise, just check out our website for more information there. Thanks very much, everyone, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. I think that's probably all we have time for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and getting messy with us. If you'd like a summary of today's podcast, you can download the show notes from messunimelb.org. Thanks again.